You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I am joined by my smart sassy, sometimes silly co-host and friends, Dr. Susan <laughs> Hudson from the Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. How are you guys doing? Hey, good. How are you, Abby? I'm doing good. I'm just enjoying the newly, well, and I shouldn't brag probably to you guys, but our weather's been, well, it's been a little rainy lately, but the weather's been nicer and I just feel the fall come. The leaves are just, just starting to change just a little bit. And so I love fall. And, and so one of my favorite things is the changing of the leaves. And I'm sure you guys have, even though, do you guys, you, leaves don't change in either place, right? Do you have fall leaves? So our leaves that change colors, you actually notice them more late November, early December. Um, so we have, we've got a lot of kind of, when I say evergreen trees, but they're like, they're like live oaks and stuff like that. Yeah, so you yeah, have yeah. those. But then, as opposed to dead oaks, no, like the t- it's a type of oak, so it's not like they're alive. They are called live oaks, <laughs> and they have these lobby okay. leaves. They have moss and stuff that hangs from them. They're pretty. Okay. They used to, they tend to be really really big trees too. With in Florida, I don't know about Texas, but they had like moss hanging from them. They were like kind of this old, like just really pretty tree. Yeah, and so that that's a lot of the trees that we have in our area. But there are a number of other trees that change colors. But it happens like when most people are thinking winter. And so <laughs> like, I, I like December cause that's kind of our, our changing of the call. And, and it's one of those things that if you pay attention, you notice it. And there's some, <laughs> there's some beautiful things that you see, but it doesn't happen this time of year right now. Actually things are getting a little greener because September, October, we tend to get a lot of rain. Mm-hmm. And so um, my grass is actually looking better than it has over the last couple of months <laughs> and and stuff like that. But I love fall too. I do. I do. What's your favorite thing about fall? I think it's just, it, it feels like a slower paced time to me. Like it's, it's a time that I can like, you know, I'm driving around and I'm like, okay, it's, it's time to breathe. I don't know why it just like, that's, it, it's a, it's a very relaxing time of year, even when things are crazy. I'm finishing up my class. I'm doing another accounting class and, you know, I got work and family and all that jazz. It's everything put together, but it, it's just a time of year that I'm like, it's not a hundred degrees, which ugh, by, you know, fall, I'm, I'm done with that. And it, and it's, it's a neat season. I mean, you're going into holidays and at my house. Yeah. It's like, I call it birthday season. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's just, it, it's a time that you can regroup. I don't know. Yeah. What about you, Carrie? What's your favorite thing about the fall? I, I also feel like it slows down just a little bit, even though it doesn't actually, I think it's because it is actually comfortable to be outside. And so you don't feel like you're rushing from one thing to the other. Like yesterday, I spent all day cleaning up my patio because now we could actually sit outside without spontaneously combusting and went and I planted flowers because this is planting season here. Oh, really? I uh-huh. saw your postings on Facebook. I love those flowers. So, so I got a bunch of flowers that I put, I have a, a ladder that I put them in and then I've got, you know, some of the shade plants and some of the marigolds and I got a bunch of succulents to, you know, supplement my, 
yeah. my various pots for that. And so it's planting season and it's sitting outside. We're not heading into freezes like you are. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, to me, that is so bizarre to think you're planting right now. That's weird. Oh, yeah. This is like my favorite time to plant like the marigolds, the big uh-huh. bushes. And yeah, they're, it's it's beautiful. But so, because it's not getting cold for a while, they last for a few months. Interesting. Yeah, like now it's worth it because now is the time that we will go and sit outside and have dinner mm-hmm. and be able to enjoy it. And so, you know, that and then fall baking always is is one of my favorite things. Carrie's favorite. I want one of your apple pies, Carrie. You talk about apple pie a lot. And I want to I want to eat one of your apple pies. Hey, we're going to be together in a couple of weeks. Could you just bring one out to, to ASRM when we're together? Oh, sure. It'll totally like, <laughs> there won't be any problems with getting that through TSA in the plane. Yeah, it's only no, a five no. hour flight. It'll be fine. Yeah. But I was thinking about like, I should make pumpkin bars with the white chocolate cream cheese frosting today. Oh, that's pretty and good. Feed those to, to my office and my family may or may not eat them. My husband likes them. Well, you know, make those and that kind of stuff. My favorite part about fall is the leaves changing and so much so that when I got married, um, I wanted to get married in October. And in fact, my anniversary is October the 25th. And so I was trying to time it where I thought the leaves would be just at their peak. Well, as it turned out, kind of like what you were saying, Susan, the, the peak was like a week later. And, and the only reason I picked that particular, I actually would have picked earlier weekend. But the only reason I picked that weekend is because I met my husband when I was a resident at University of Florida. So he's a huge Gator fan. Of course, I grew up in close to Knoxville, Tennessee. Did you have to plan it in between football games? Yes. So <laughs> so the only week that was a free week for Florida and for Tennessee, because I was a Tennessee fan, he was a Florida fan, and, and we were having it in my house in Tennessee, and I knew if there was a UT football game going on, nobody would be coming to the wedding. <laughs> so we did it on an open weekend when there's no Florida or Tennessee football game, and when I hoped the leaves were at their peak, but they still were pretty, though, but. So, yeah, we have an October anniversary, too, for the the same reason for seasons changing. But there was no football. (laughs) Well, I take it back. We might have negotiated around a Bears game. I take it back. (laughs) Anyway, I think that's a common theme with a lot of people. Yeah. So, well, Susan, what questions do you have for us from our listeners? Okay, let's see. Hi there. Thank you so much for taking my question. I just love your podcast. You guys are the best. I am almost 35 years old. After I got married, we struggled to get pregnant. My HSG was abnormal, so they did a laparoscopy. I was diagnosed with a right rudimentary ovary and absent right tube. Through more testing, my uterine cavity was negative. AMH was 1.2. We were getting ready to start an IVF cycle and fell pregnant naturally right after surgery. A miracle. I had my daughter in 2018 and never resumed normal cycles again. I did four rounds of Clomid and conceived my son. Since I have done 10 months of Clomid and Letrozole, one failed IUI and a failed IVF cycle resulting in one immature egg. Luteal esterase priming, gonal 300, 225 minipure, double Avadrol trigger, 36 hours later retrieval, six follicles, 18 to 23 millimeters. My AFC and estradiol dropped from 10 to 6 and 30s to 10, respectively. My FSH stayed steady around 6.8. AMH is 0.8 to 1.9. I take all things supplements, including DHEA. Should I come to terms with my family being complete? My doctor wants to try another cycle with MDL, same dosages in HGH. What do you think? Am I going into dot, dot, dot menopause? Um, can the DHEA be harming my levels? Thank you so much. I mean, her AMH is 1.8. I mean, that's, that's a good AMH. What do you think, Carrie? I mean, I, I, you know, it's kind of like pulling the, the, the lever on the slot machine. It's like, 
you know, every time you go through an IVF cycle, things kind of get tweaked a little bit. And, you know, it's like it, it usually comes down to emotionally, can you continue to do it? And financially, can you continue to do it? But she's not at the end of the line if she's got an AMH of 1.8. Susan's making a face, though. Why are you making a face, Susan? Only one mature follicle? Like, Well, but I, but is that the stem? I'm wondering if maybe... It sounds like a dominant follicle. And it just sounds like there's... I, I have two feelings about this. One, I wasn't completely wild about the fact that they did 10 months of Clomid and Letrozole yeah. and in that time frame only did one IUI. Like At that point, I was like, maybe you might want to try a different clinic. But that's kind of water under the bridge though now, you know. I know, but to me that's part of looking at that those folks thought process. Yeah. And maybe it could maybe there's a lab issue. Um, I like the idea of trying the HGH and trying, you know, something else, maybe not doing well, I would presume though that the doctor looked at kind of her stimulation before and is going to tweak it, but I mean, with the AMH of 1.8, I mean, there's something still there. I mean, I don't think she's going through premature ovarian failure with an AMH of 1.8. That's good. But all the testing we do, if you have to make a decision based on what you actually did in an IVF cycle versus what testing is, I mean, your IVF cycle is your gold standard. And that was a whopping dose of meds. I mean, 300, 225, like... Oh, I didn't hear that. Okay, yeah, that is a whopping dose. That doesn't match with the AMH of 1.8. You're right, I didn't hear that. No, it doesn't. Well, it's 0.8 to 1.9, so it looks like it's been variable. I mean, I don't think the DHEA is is necessarily hurting her levels. Yeah, I don't think that's got anything to do with it. No, I think there definitely is... There's an egg issue... Okay. I would give it another try. What'd she say her intra follicle count was? Um, between 10 to six. Hmm. And then she got six to grow, but only one came out. I mean, I would, I would probably try another IVF cycle just because you have nothing to lose. And I have patients where I swear it takes us three cycles to get to good embryos. And, and in some of those cycles, it's the patient who is pushing, like, I want to keep going. I want to keep going after I'm already like, eh, I think we should move. And then I'll be damned if they don't get a good embryo. <laughs> Up until she got that dominant follicle, that one that was a lot bigger than the others. I mean, she didn't seem like she was doing so bad at the beginning. She had a good microfollicle count, reasonable microfollicle count. So I would probably go with do do the priming again. I might consider a Lupron flare cycle just to try something a little bit different. HGH. the the data shows that it's not really going to help, but I doubt it's going to hurt. Yeah. uh, Except maybe your pocketbook because it's expensive. But I think if you can emotionally and financially swing it, it's worth another shot. If you cannot, then I think it's okay to be grateful for what you have and grateful for how much effort you have put into it and say, okay, I'm good. But that is a very personal decision. And at what point you decide, all right, I'm going to accept except the gratitude for what I have, mm-hmm. that's that's your decision. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now we are going to move on to our topic of the day. And our topic of the day is what we know and what we don't know about endometrial receptivity. And I would say, I would venture to say we probably know less about what goes on than about what does go on and what enhances endometrial receptivity. So Carrie, kind of start us off and tell us what endometrial receptivity is and then we'll kind of go from there. I'd like to just mention that we are all sitting here squirming. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Why are we squirming, Susan? There is not hard and fast data. It's a very vague topic. And I think we all have some faith in some of the things that we're doing. And some of it is just experience. And it just 
is is not a black and white thing. And that's exactly why I wanted to bring it up because, you know, I feel like I have this conversation with patients a fair amount of time and they kind of look at me sometimes like I have three heads because they'll come in and go, well, okay, if my embryo transfer didn't work, then you know, if it's, if you think the embryo is good, then what do we need to do to improve my endometrium? What do we, what tests do we need to do? And there's just not that many. And so it's frustrating for me. It's frustrating for patients. And I think it also drives them to go on the internet and look at all these things that we all know are antiquated that really don't make a difference. So that's why I kind of wanted to talk about it because it is really vague. So start off and tell me kind of what it is, Susan, that we're even talking about. Woohoo, I'm off the hook. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. So um, but very simply, what are things that we can look at with the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus, that we can potentially modify or manipulate to improve your chances of a successful pregnancy in the future? Like, that, that's the simplest way I can say it. And I, I think... The easiest place to start since the, since this just got tossed in my lap. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we had no pre, pre-preparation for this at all. I just came up with this idea that I wanted to talk about. So. The things I think everybody can agree on is, number one, making sure that anatomically everything looks good inside the uterus. What do you mean by anatomically? So structurally, everything looks good. So I would say most folks are going to have either a saline ultrasound or an HSG before they have had an embryo transfer. If they haven't had one, they definitely need one or the other. I personally don't like HSGs for evaluation of the lining of the uterus because they definitely miss things like polyps that you can see on a saline ultrasound. So my my opinion is saline ultrasound is definitely better than HSG. What kinds of things do you find on a saline sonogram and HSG, and when do you act on it? Right. So, I mean, you can find things like polyps, little overgrowths of the lining of the uterus. You might find some fibroids um, that are interfering with the lining of the uterus. You may find adhesions that may have formed potentially from like if you've had a DNC in the past or something like that. Sometimes there's adhesions that we don't have a great explanation of why they're there. We can also see abnormalities in the inherent shape of the lining of the uterus. Generally speaking, if we have, it's the degree of a heart shape. So if you have a very mild heart shape, um, something called an arcuate uterus, generally we don't think surgical intervention is worthwhile. However, I think all of us, if you're in there already in a hysteroscopy and you have an arcuate uterus, you're probably going to take a few snips at that <laughs> um, to, to make it have a normal contour. If you have a septum, that should definitely be taken care of because that septum is fibrous. It doesn't have the same healthy blood supply as the rest of the uterus. Now, when you get into more severe things like a bicorneate uterus or didelphic uterus, those things we generally don't surgically correct. We, we work with them. I was going to say one of the things that um, going back to the, the general concept of hysteroscopy is, um, I don't know about you guys, but I used to be a little bit more reserved in when I would do a hysteroscopy and I would wait for someone to have either a clear surgical indication, meaning we do our saline sonogram and then something that is abnormal. So I go in and do it versus 
um, someone who had a couple of failed cycles, like beautiful embryos, and it just didn't stick. Well, we've started to get more into the data on endometritis and abnormalities. And so our practice has started to do hysteroscopies on everybody just as part of their workup. But oh my God, it's like every one in five or six women where we will check and we've done, especially as we've started out, we've cross-referenced, okay, how many sonohist saline ultrasounds do we do that look normal? And then we do a hysteroscopy without anesthesia. So quick camera in, out, done. And holy crap, the abnormalities that we're finding are huge. I mean, it's every one in one in five women, maybe one in six. I mean, that's, that's a solid 15 to 20% of women where I go back and I look at their original photos from their saline ultrasound and there's lots of views and it looks beautiful. And then I get in there and it's, there's scar tissue, there's um, adhesions floating around. It's extremely inflamed, like what you would see with endometritis and none of that gets picked up. And so we've actually started to do a lot more of these procedures because we just weren't picking it up. And so now I'm really curious to see down the line, what's it going to do to our success rates? Cause this is, we've just started this within the past I don't know, maybe six months or so. That'd be really great information to look at and to publish too. Cause, yeah. cause I, I kind of go back and forth with that. You know, it's like when we, somebody has a saline sonogram and we find a polyp or something like that and it's less than a centimeter, it's kind of like, well, I mean, I don't know if it's clinically significant or not. And, you know, certainly if they had more than one, I lean toward doing hysteroscopy and it depends a lot on, you know, some people want to leave no stone unturned and want to really look. And, but, you know, I, I sort of have this guilt complex sometimes when I go in surgically and I just see, one little ditzy polyp that's not very big at all. I'm like, yeah, was this really worth doing it or not? And if nothing else, I think for both the patient and for me, it's worth peace of mind to say, you know, we've done everything that we can, but that'll be really interesting to see what that study says. I think a lot of it is when we look at fertility treatments, quite honestly, very rarely do we have a single slam bang. This is absolutely what the problem is. Right. Yeah. And a lot of our fertility care is maximizing. So we're maximizing what the lining of the uterus looks like. And then we're maximizing egg and sperm interaction. We're maximizing. And by maximizing all those things together, any one of those things may not have helped result in a pregnancy. But when you get all your I's dotted and T's crossed, which is why our OCD really pays off in what we do, mm-hmm. that's how we improve those those chances of pregnancy. And what Carrie was saying, you know, probably, wow, that study I'm thinking of was almost probably 10 years ago that showed that in somebody who had had normal saline ultrasounds but had had two embryo transfers that were unsuccessful, 30% of those people had uterine pathology at the time of hysteroscopy. And that was before most people were doing consistently PGT cycles. And so I've, I kind of manipulated that data in my own brain saying, well, if that was two untested embryo cycles that were unsuccessful, if I transfer a normal embryo, I'm much more quick to go to hysteroscopy than I was very early in, in my career. But what, what do y'all think about things like ERA testing and BCL6? Now and for all the hard the, questions. All, all for the hard stuff. So punch back. <laughs> so I was just about to ask Carrie that very question. So Carrie, now you have the patient. She's had a normal hysteroscopy. She's had one or two failed cycles with beautiful embryos and the transfer went great. What do you talk to her about? So we talk about... PGT testing, we talk about the impact of genetics. We talk about the impact of transferring every embryo that she has. No, not all at once. 
still going to do <laughs> one at a time in general. Yes. Um, just because that ultimately, like this is about the baby, not about the positive pregnancy test. Um, when people ask me specifically about the ERA. What is the ERA? The ERA is the endometrial receptivity assay. And it's a test that you do in a month that you are not going to transfer. So you do it one month, you transfer the next month. And it's a biopsy. Except in some cases, if you do birth control pills and then you do estrace, whatever you do before, like in that cycle, you do in the next cycle. So if your doctor has you on a birth control pill, you do the birth control pill, the stimulation and the biopsy in that cycle. So sometimes it can even be a two month cycle. Right. Like you, you prime, you pretend it's the real deal right? and then you take your biopsy and you get it sent off and it tells you whether or not you are receptive, pre-receptive or post-receptive, i.e. do you transfer when we think we should before that or after that, depending on how your lining is doing. Um, I don't do this test. And what I tell my patients is, is there is one key assumption that this test makes, which is that the uterus responds the exact same way every time you do something. And I do a lot of gestational carrier cycles in our, our clinic. And so what I have seen over just many years of doing this, and this applies to, to regular patients as well, but gestational carriers are women who have had successful pregnancies and don't typically don't have fertility problems. And they go through and they go through this priming and they get their embryo transfer. Well, what I have seen is that in GCs, we can prime everything, see a lining that doesn't look good scrap the cycle, do it again, the exact same thing. And the next month we see with the exact same priming of different result. So the assumption that the lining is the same from one month to the next has no basis. Like that's part of the reason why the luteal phase biopsies, the endometrial biopsies that used to be done in the, you know, several, many, many years ago, they kind of fell by the wayside. They weren't reliable. Mm-hmm. Well, this is banking on that premise that is the same from month to month. And so I don't think that premise is valid. And so as a result, there's less reason for me to do it. And when you really look at the data, it doesn't show a whole lot of change between the two. And so for something that is both expensive and painful, I don't do it. We do do evaluations. We do mock cycles. We make sure that we have a good frame of reference. We do the hysteroscopy. We do practice embryo transfers, making sure that everything is as easy as it can be and as as well uh, organized as it can be. And I have definitely shifted the window of when I transfer to still be within the window of implantation, but at a different point in it. But for the ERA, like when you really parse through that data, because this is something that my partners and our staff statistician and I have gone through umpteen million times. It just, I want to believe in it so bad. <laughs> I really want to believe in it. So I think bad. we all want to believe it, but the data is just not there. I yeah. haven't seen it in the data and I haven't seen it in real life. And so I don't use it because it's expensive and painful. And so I just don't, but I don't fault the people who do. I have a little bit different perspective. I don't do ERAs on everybody, but I definitely have people that I have not been able to get pregnant without the ERA. I remember when ERA, when I first started doing ERA in my practice, I had one person particularly that I remember, I think I had transferred somewhere between four to six embryos previously. Could not get her pregnant. Did the ERA, made the adjustment, she was pregnant the next cycle. And and I've had people like that. And some of it may also depend on when you typically do your biopsy based on your own protocols because different people have different number of hours of progesterone exposure. So essentially what the ERA cycle does, the endometrial receptivity assay, 
is it measures the hours of exposure to progesterone. And, and it may vary on even the types of progesterone that you're, that you're using. Um, you can't change what you're doing theoretically between cycle to cycle. So I tend to use it in my practice. I don't use it for everybody. I, if somebody has two, three, four embryos that are chromosomally normal, I don't usually start off there. But if I've been unsuccessful, there are definitely people that I've made the changes and they've been pregnant. And could it have been if I just did that next cycle, it would have happened anyway? It, it is it is possible, but I, I do have some people in my clinic that I do believe if I wouldn't have had that change that I wouldn't have ended up with those people having babies. Yeah, and I'm kind of of the same mindset as you, Susan. And it's not, you know, I, I agree with Carrie. The data is definitely not there. Um you know, unfortunately, in our field, there's just not a lot of randomized perspective studies in reproductive medicine. So it's hard to really fall back on, you know, what the studies show. But, you know, honestly, sometimes when you've done the hysteroscopy, the cavity looks good. When you've transferred, you know, two or three genetically normal embryos, the transfer's been easy. You've done practice transfers and they still don't get pregnant. You know, again, patients looking across the table at me and I'm looking at her and we're like, what are we going to do differently? You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and accepting a different result. And so, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a lot of, you know, stock in the ERA biopsy, but I'm like, well, let's just do something, something different. And so I don't know if that really means anything. I don't know if it's just if you keep doing the same thing, if you keep flipping the coin and you have a 65 to 70% chance of pregnancy with each coin flip, if you just keep flipping it enough times, you're going to have the right outcome and just happen to be on the one where you did the ERA biopsy. But sometimes I do that just because I, I don't know what else to do. I mean, when you look at the data from the ERA, if it's going to show that there's a mismatch, most often it's that you're pre-receptive and that you need to push you know, 12 to 24 hours. And so I think it, right. I think it makes sense. Like if you, if you're hitting a wall, you know, just push it the next day. So instead of doing even more progesterone. Yeah. Yeah. Just give them a little more progesterone. I don't think you need the ERA to tell you to make that decision to do something different. Um, the other thing that's really important is the type of progesterone exposure that you're, that you are getting. Is it precise? Do you know exactly what time right. she has started and, and is she getting an adequate amount? I mean, there's a difference. Certainly there's a difference between oral progesterone and the other methods. Oral is not adequate in an IVF frozen embryo transfer cycle. There's big debates on vaginal versus progesterone. There was a good study that was published in the last couple months that showed that I am progesterone is a bit more reliable. And so that always raises hackles when people discuss it because vaginal versus IM has been a big debate for a long time because IM is literally a pain in the butt. <laughs> I mean, the vaginal is no treat either because it feels like you've got the worst yeast infection ever as those suppositories just come out. So it's like the adjustments that we make are... There's some data behind it, but a lot of them is just gestalt and okay, we've been doing this and this is what I think we can change reasonably. And also you don't want to, you don't want to change so much that you put yourself out in left field. Yeah. So are there any other types of tests, biopsies, et cetera, that you guys do in a patient who has multiple failed cycles? I mean, there, there's other testing out there. I don't typically do it. I know there's, I believe the BCL6 testing. Um, do either of y'all do that? Occasionally, I will. Um, that looks at integrins, which are cell adhesion factors. And there's something called BCL6 that seems to be correlated with the presence of endometriosis, or at least that's what is kind of suggested. If it's present, it's bad for it to be present. You don't want it to be present. And so 
The problem with that test is there's really no definitive information about what you should do for treatment. The person who's done a lot of research in that area, Bruce Lessie, has worked and done research in integrins for a long, long time. And in the studies that they published, they've showed that it there does seem to be a bit of improvement in those patients. BCL-6 never goes away, but if they're treated either with Femara or treated with, which is a, a, you know estrogen-lowering drug, potentially may have some impact of endometriosis is present. And then the other drug that they treat with is Depolupron for about three months. And so again, the Ooh. idea is the idea that this BCL-6 is linked with the presence of endometriosis. And so, you know, we know traditionally the only way you can diagnose endometriosis is to do laparoscopy. Um, but some of the studies that they've done have suggested that you may not necessarily need to do that. You sort of just treat them as if they have endometriosis. And again, the assumption, and Carrie suggest, you know, suggested this with the other biopsy, the assumption is, and not everybody agrees with this, that if you have endometriosis, that it has some impact on these cell adhesion factors in your uterus. And that's a really controversial area in our field. And I don't think there's a consensus on that. So every now and then, if I have a patient who's had multiple re repeated transfers and hasn't gotten pregnant, has a history of endometriosis, sometimes I will do that biopsy. But I don't, I don't commonly do that. I, I probably do it maybe once every two years or something, real uncommon. And the Lupron protocol for a prolonged period of time will help, I think helps, but I don't have the data to back it up. Yeah. And, and I think that's the important thing about this episode that I just wanted to convey to our patients. I think if you're talking one-on-one -on -one to your physician, sometimes you're like, okay, is she just making this up? Is this really true? And, you know, I've been in this field for almost 25 years. And unfortunately, there really has not been much headway in what goes on in the endometrium when somebody gets pregnant. And that's I think if we had more information about that, I think that we would be able to maybe make the next hurdle and bump up our pregnancy rates. I, I think that's hopefully in the next 15 to 20 years, that's what the research is going to be more focused maybe on the endometrium and ways that we can help with cell adhesion and help with implantation. But right now, there's just not randomized perspective data. And it's more just kind of, you know, your sixth sense, your gestalt, your what have we done before? So let's try something different. There's just no set in stone route that you're supposed to go if somebody's had two or three failed transfers. Any other comments you guys would like to make or is that all? I think that's good. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Tune in next week for more and be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility and all questions will be answered anonymously on our Ask the Docs segment. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. As always, this is intended as entertainment and is not a substitute for the advice of your own medical doctor. We'll see you all soon. Bye. 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 Bye.